otherwise on SAFM. So first up on the show then today, in our, another in our series on women's organisations, women-focused bodies, as it were, both here at home and abroad, Bird's Eye View, the London-based film festival. Well, there's certainly an exciting one coming up next week in London, but first we thought we'd take a little bit of a look back into its history. So we spoke earlier to founder and brand-new mother for a second time, Rachel Millward, to find out how long it had been going. Yes, just over a decade ago, um, and I thought I was making short films with a friend. She was directing, I was producing, and we had this seven-minute short film which we wanted to premiere. And in those days, you can't do this anymore in London, but you could book the Curzon Cinema in Soho in London for an hour on a Thursday night at 6 o'clock um, for a private, for your, yeah, your own private use. And we did that. We realised that no one would come and see a seven-minute short film. So we thought we'd make it into an event um, and kind of to support and celebrate our peers. So we, we curated a selection of films by emerging women directors and put them on in that hour and then marketed it as Bird's Eye View for the first time. And it did brilliantly. There were huge on the block. It sold out. There's much excitement and people really asking for more of it, for, for more opportunities to see work by women and to have more of this network developing. Um, and so I sort of saw what it could become, really, and then from there developed it into a fully-fledged international film festival, um, the first one of which was in 2005 at the uh, British Film Institute, then called the National Film Theatre in London um, and other, diff- other venues around the city. Um, and it's been growing ever since, really. I directed seven festivals, and I've now brought in a new festival director to, to, to do the next few. But I'm staying on as chief exec. But it's, we, we show film, films from all around the world, all directed by women, all written by women, all, all the films. The fact, uh, the yeah, fact and we've that also been running training labs for emerging women writers to develop new screenplays as well. So it's been an exciting few years. Very exciting, exciting decade. And the fact that it uh, took off so instantaneously kind of answers my next question, which was going to be, did you have to battle 10 years ago to find many women filmmakers? Well, I think, I mean, we've never really struggled to find content. It's not like there aren't any women filmmakers. It's just that percentage-wise, it's a very small percentage of films overall. So kind of internationally, the figure that's normally talked about is that about 7% of film directors are women. And that's certainly true of Hollywood. I think we actually probably don't have accurate figures for every country in the world. But it, it seems to be the global norm. I mean, in Britain, that's gone up to, it went up to about 15% was its height a couple of years ago. Um, so we're slightly better, but often it's back down to 6%. So generally, yeah, it's, a, it's a, about a tenth of all films that you see in the cinema are directed by women, which clearly did more than 50%. It's crazy. Um, so... It's very small in relation to how many films there are all together, um, and yet there are many very talented women film directors. So for us, it's about celebrating them and their diverse contribution to cinema, really, making it really clear to people that women don't just make one kind of film. They're not just chick flicks. They're not just emotional weepies. They're not, you know, they're all different kinds of films that women are making. So we try and celebrate that and really encourage more emerging creatives to to pursue their dreams and really make that happen and, um, you know, be encouraged and inspired that they could do that. Because I think quite often what's happening if you talk to producers or people in studios is that they're not actually, when it comes to scripts particularly, they're not actually getting many submissions from women. They're not reading many scripts written by women and not much is coming through. So we're trying to kind of encourage more women to keep pursuing that. 
So the fact that the, the uh, that it's a woman-made film, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a woman content. Nonetheless, the title of the festival is Bird's Eye View. Do you find that they do reflect a, a woman's perspective? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting this because we we definitely don't program according to the content. So we're not looking for films about women's issues specifically, um, and we certainly are not. We're not biased against films that are about men or men's stories. But absolutely, inevitably, if you have a woman writing the story and a female perspective, like a, a woman behind the camera, so it's really through the, the female eye, it just really does make a difference. So what we end up with is a, is a fantastic variety of films that have strong female roles in them. They have great male roles as well, perhaps, but they, they have interesting, complex um, female characters, which actually, it's amazing how rare that is in mainstream cinema. Mm. Um, and if you start to kind of think about that, when you go to the cinema, you realise that the women are usually the sidekicks, the men are usually driving the plot forward. If there are older people in the film, they're generally male, unless they're the kind of sidekick character, you know, the, the kind of the wife, the girlfriend, whatever. Um, but it's usually, and you can see this in terms of the leading actors of today, it's, it's the older men who can open films rather than women. So if you actually have women write those, those stories, inevitably the, the female characters are much more rounded. And that's something that's really, really vital, I think, and something which has such a big impact on others' audiences and how we relate to the films that we watch and how they impact us and then how we see ourselves, really. Um, I guess watching films is a, is a chance to explore different roles, to kind of find ourselves, relate to ourselves in different characters that you see, you know, find a bit of yourself in them. And if you're not seeing characters that you relate to or that resonate with reality, then, you know, I think that really has a profound effect on women. Um, so it is, it's, it's very exciting to see what comes through. Yes. Um, Do you feel that you're in a position to say that you've made a difference? I mean, 10 years down the line, each and every woman who's come to see your film, and I'm assuming that it's not just women who come to see the film, but do you think, no. do you, are you beginning to see the effects of what you've done in terms of sort of ripple effect that, that women are sort of pushing their own boundaries more and more in the last 10 years? Well, what's been quite noticeable, and I, I don't know whether it's just bird's eye view or whether it's, you know, we were part of a kind of shift of consciousness because I think that, that happens with something kind of collective um, out there in cultures. And I, I think certainly here in the UK, feminism has suddenly become kind of popular again in a, in a, in a really different way. I, mean, I couldn't have used that word a decade ago, really, without turning a lot of people off. Mm. Um, you know, it just would have been a, been a problem, really, to use that word, because it has such negative connotations for people. Now it's actually really shifted, and there's a lot more people, younger women especially, getting involved in those kind of movements. There's a couple of other big sort of cross-arts, multi-arts festivals that have come up. One particularly, Women of the World at the South Bank Centre, which is more women in music and have discussions and that kind of thing. There's another kind of short film festival that's come through that supports women filmmakers and short films, just short films, in London. And so it's kind of, we're seeing it, I think we've really seen a big rise in activity around the women's movement again over the last decade. And that's been quite exciting to see yeah and how's it how's it being received uh, I, I mean were you were you to call bird's eye view a feminist um festival would you get flack or would that be i mean are you using that word now well, comfortably I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real it's a it's a very problematic word feminism isn't it it mm. means different things to different people i think in reality there are probably lots of different kinds of feminism 
I mean, it, it's not a word that we use when we're talking about bird's eye view because we're, we're just simply showing films made by women and celebrating female talent. I think if we were to call ourselves a feminist film festival, people would expect analysis of the films through a kind of feminist lens, some kind of feminist discourse, and we actually just don't do that because we're really encouraging women to make whatever they want to make and not to feel that they we're only supporting women who have a certain political agenda. Um, so it is different, um, but still it's obviously in the context of a women's movement, which I think is, is what I mean. We've seen that really uh, gain momentum again, and particularly amongst younger women. And also, a simple thing, but we, um, we've always had a big event on International Women's Day on March the 8th in London. And when we started a decade ago, people didn't, people hadn't heard of this day, they didn't know anything about it, there was really not much going on. And now there's, there's a really vibrant scene of events happening across the city. So the, the culture is shifting again, that's interesting. Yeah, but in yeah. terms of the film, um, and specifically, are there more women filmmakers as a result? Um, I guess that's a tricky one to analyse, to know where your impact's been. There are definitely specific examples of filmmakers who maybe have been feeling discouraged um, or, you know, who weren't really sure whether to bother keeping on fighting to get that next script made, because it takes so long and it's such a struggle for everybody who've definitely been encouraged and who've told us that and then sort of one of them went on to win a factor and things like this. So there's been a definite positive impact in terms of inspiration and encouragement. Um, and then I think, you know, there's probably been more schemes popping up to support women writers and directors because I guess the industry can't pretend it doesn't know about this problem anymore because yeah. we've just been putting this spotlight on the problem uh, and saying that this is ridiculously imbalanced. It's not just a bit imbalanced, it's insanely imbalanced. Yeah. Um, and holding that spotlight there means that people have to start addressing it. So um, I think in, in those kinds of ways there has been some difference. You do point out that a film is a whole lot of work. It's not just something you do quickly. It's not even uh, something that's very comfortable to do because it takes such an incredibly long time. And I know that you're sitting right there with a baby on your lap right now, uh, which is indicative <laughs> yeah. of the fact that, you know, one, one's working time is very much so, sort of seriously interrupted. But you talk about the International Women's Day, March the 8th, and I think that you've got something of an international component to the festival coming up very soon. That's right. Well, this, the festival this year is, is quite different from from the, our previous festivals. Um, we've had um, we've had a, an interesting road in the last couple of years with the, the UK Film Council closing and uh, the funds transferring to the British Film Institute. There's been a strange kind of hiatus in funding in between, um, and so we sort of managed to make a really exciting festival happen this year. That's got this specific focus on Arab women, Arab women filmmakers. So it's um, again there's an amazing diversity of content and styles. We've got features, documentaries and short films um, and a really different types of content. Um, so some very political documentaries, but some about musicians. Um, we've got feature films that are kind of edgy teen dramas um, or we've got the, we had actually already on International Women's Day to launch the program. We had Wajda, which is the first ever Saudi Arabian film made by Saudi Arabia's first woman filmmaker, um, Haifa Al-Mansur, which is quite a fantastic um, really amazing, exciting thing to achieve, which comes from a country where cinema is effectively banned. Mm. Um, so pretty hard for her to make that film. Um, and you know, women women aren't allowed to girls aren't allowed to ride bicycles is the basic theme of the film. There's this little girl who who really wants a bicycle, and she ends up getting herself one through the most um, subversive ways. But it really reveals the situation for women in Saudi Arabia through the film. So some like that, where you're getting. Um, through fiction, you're getting lots of insight into the different cultures 
Um, but yeah, huge, huge variety. And that's in, that's next week. Starts mm. next Wednesday, April the 3rd, um, and, and goes on to April the 10th. Is there a chance that there might be an African women filmmakers collection at some stage? Yeah. Yeah, why not? I mean, um, we definitely, what we plan to do from here is to have the major international festival every other year. Mm. So that will be 2014, we'll be back to films from all the world. And then 2015, we'll have a different regional focus again, um, which I think is really exciting because it means you can dig a bit deeper, you can get a better sense of, you know, what, what the situation is for women filmmakers from that region. And you can get this really fantastic opportunity to explore the cinema of a region which really does i think teach you so much i love it that film brings alive um you know stories you hear on the news peripherally all the time but when you watch a film and you kind of get to know some characters through a film you really have a much more rounded understanding of that of that place um so yes it could well be it could well be Africa or part of Africa. Who knows? It would be nice to it would be nice to capture Africa through a woman's perspective, through a, a bird's mm. eye view. So I'm uh, going to give out your details in just a minute if anybody would like to know a little bit more about the festival and how they can get in touch. But, you know, in the interests of balance here, I think it's quite important that everybody supports everybody else. But I think if I just draw attention to the fact that your husband has also been very busy with something. Yeah, that's right. My husband's company is called Hide and Seek, and they invent new kinds of play. So he's busy trying to get uh, people having more real-world social fun, um, uh, yeah, in, in all kinds of different ways, uh, which is all very exciting, and they work with lots of different cultural partners. But they are currently launching this uh, project called Tiny Games, and there's um, something on Kickstarter at the moment, which is a crowdfunding website where people can contribute to get this new project off the ground, um, which is where you can access hundreds of real-world games via your iPhone or your different kind of mobile phone. Um, so you can tell this app where you are, how many of you are, what kind of mood you're in, what you've got access to. Like you might be in the pub or in the park or just at home in your kitchen. Um, and it will give you some games to play right there and then with your friends. Very few rules, lots of fun. Um, and that's this new project which they're developing and they're just currently raising funds to do that, which is going very well. But it, there's about 17 days left, I think, for people to get involved. And you get lots of rewards like... Um, mugs with games on them and details with games on them to play in your kitchen and um, things like this. You can even have a game designed personally for your own event and that kind of thing as you contribute at different levels. Well, that sounds uh, like so lots of fun. I'm just thinking that uh, tiny games. Tiny games. It's, so it's not games for tinies. It's tiny games. It's not games for tinies. It's, they are literally tiny games. Do you, <laughs> do you see um, well, at it, some it, stage? This project that began during the Olympics. Mm. They, they did. Tiny games okay. The okay, very appropriate. Do you see, just lastly, do you see that one day there might be a festival of films by children? By children? Uh, wouldn't that be exciting? Uh, it, I think, I don't know what, I'm trying to think about the children's film festivals I know are films for children, but not so much by children. There's some schemes, certainly here in the UK, where sort of the under-18s make them more like 16-year-old children do make some films. There's projects like First Light that are for children but um yeah i guess well let's hope that this one lying on my knee makes some makes some great films in her lifetime <laughs> certainly she's got a good role model rachel thank you so much thank Lovely. you 
That was Rachel Millward. She's founder and chief executive of London's Bird's Eye View Film Festival. And if you'd like more info on that, check their site. It's www.birds-eye-view.co.uk. Nelson Mandela Square presents Handel's Messiah in conjunction with SAFM, conducted by Richard Koch with the Festival Orchestra and the Symphony Choir of Johannesburg. The Handel's Messiah Easter Celebration is a performance that will end your Easter weekend on a high note. This Easter Monday from 4 to 7 p.m. Entrance is free. Provision has been made for rain and donations will be collected for charity. For more information, visit our website at safm.co.za. SAFM. South Africa's news and information leader. If you're a regular listener to Time to Travel on SAFM on Wednesday evenings just after 9, you'll know that I always encourage you to become tourists in your own town or city. And what I'd like you to do is to take a moment and think about something unusual or different that you'd like to share, something you'd like to highlight that makes your town or city so special, something you wouldn't hesitate to recommend to a tourist to your area. Then send me an email to travel at safm.co.za or post something on the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM. As soon as I have a good selection, I'd like to start a feature on the show called My Town and who knows, I may even call you up and invite you to tell the listeners all about it Time to Travel with Karen Key Otherwise with Nancy Richards Well next up on the show celebrating women's outputs in the arts right here in Africa, Goretti Kayomoendo is director of the African Writers Trust, she's also founding member of Femrite, the Ugandan Women's Writers Association Well, she's a many times published author herself, but I spoke to her earlier and asked her exactly when she started writing. I started writing in the early 90s, and I started writing for the newspapers, because at that time, they had just advertised the call for short stories, and I submitted my short story, and it was published. And I continued writing. It was a weekly pullout, so... Almost every weekend, I'll have a short story published. But what happened is my, my editor used, used to cut short my short stories. And when I complained, you know, she said, you know, this is not new super style. So perhaps you need to write a novel. And I think that's when the idea started. So I started writing, and uh, I didn't really know or plan it to be a novel. I was just writing a long short story. When you were writing the short stories, did you have a theme? What were your stories about? And now looking back, I think it was actually what might be about my, my own life because the character in that short stories was always a woman going through some difficulties in life, you know, her triumphs if she succeeded. So looking back, I think I was looking inside my, inside my own life. Was it to try and make sense of your own life? I think so. I think so, and I think for for every writer, the, the, the first writing is usually about something in your heart. I think now I believe that. You know, you try to fictionalize it, you try to create a character around it, but essentially I think it is something that has happened in your life or your own life, and after you get that out of the way, then you can start writing fiction. 
clearly it worked for you because you then went on to become a founding member of FemRight, which is a Ugandan women's writing association. Was it with the purpose of trying to help other women to tell their stories? Why did you start it? I, I think it was also because of my own you know, history, my own publishing history. Because when I finished the manuscript, at that time, there was only one mainstream publisher in the country. And I remember walking in there. I'd never met any writer. I didn't have any experience of writing or publishing. I hadn't been to university. So the whole experience was really intimidating. And uh, when the manuscript was accepted, the publisher couldn't find enough money to publish it. So I had to look for the money from a funding organization, because that's for a Dutch funding organization, and they sponsored the publication of the book. So I think after going through that, and in the process I had met another woman who was a lecturer at the university teaching literature. So she had been commissioned to review my manuscript before the funding organization could give the money to the publisher. And she actually had this idea of starting a women writers organization. And, and when she sold me the idea, I said, I think we really need to do this. And I fell for the idea because I had some difficulties, as I've already said, trying to publish my first manuscript. The purpose of FemRight was to encourage new women writers or to give a, a vehicle for existing writers. Uh, for both. The, the main purpose was to create a platform for women writers and to facilitate them to publish their books. Because when we started from rights, actually we put out a call in the newspapers asking women who either were planning to write or had already written but not published or had already written and published. So it was a varied group of, of women, those aspiring, those already writing, and those already published. So the, the response was completely overwhelming for us because we, we could have got maybe about uh, maybe 30 women who turned up for the first workshop, and nearly all of them had written something. A few of them had published a short story here and there, but the, the biggest, I think, the, the, the thread that we found that ran across all these women was the lack of personal empowerment, the mm. lack of confidence. Even those who had already written and published, they didn't have the confidence to refer to themselves as writers. Then those who were writing had a complete manuscript, for example, but didn't feel it was good enough to present to a publisher. So they have been writing and keeping them under their pillows. And then those who had started didn't have the confidence to start writing the story. Have you found then, or did you find that when you were actually coordinating the program at FemRight, did you find that it not only gave women the confidence that uh, they become stronger through their writing, but also perhaps that what was emerging was stories that had not yet been heard, you know, perhaps stories from women oh. in Uganda, that it was maybe telling oh. a part of Uganda's story that previously had not really been heard? I would think so, because the, the, the first years we published anthologies, short story anthologies or poetry collections, so that we could uh, incorporate all the members. But uh, along the way, we discovered women who would come to us 
but didn't have the skills. They didn't. They couldn't write. They couldn't read. But they had a story to tell. So what we did, we recorded their stories. We transcribed the stories and published them. So indeed, if we didn't have that program, those women's voices would never have been heard because they didn't have the tools to write or tell their stories. Do you think that applies just to women in Africa or women in Uganda? Because I know that you've also you've got an MA in creative writing from University of KZN, done a writing program at uh, University of Iowa in the States. Do women all over the world experience the same sort of confidence issues? Uh, I'm saying no, because mm. my experience of working with women writers in Uganda is and maybe uh, as African countries. I think the root of the lack of personal empowerment and uh, you know, self-confidence comes from the fact that you know, the, the African woman, her identity is constructed using that of another person. So, for example, this woman will be referred to as the mother of John or the wife of so-and-so mm. or the daughter of this man. So this woman carries those three or four or multiple identities. And when it comes to writing, this woman has to think of the several identities that have been bestowed on her by, by culture or by the society. So she has to think, if I use the F word, what will my son think? What mm-hmm. will the community that refers to me as the mother of? Because it's not only a title, it's also an honor. You know, so it weighs down on their shoulders when they think of those identities. And uh, one of the experiences I had, for example, was one of the women writers who came to us with a very beautiful story written in the first person. And I remember the, the opening line was, I was raped on my wedding night. And I remember it gripped me immediately and I wanted to read the whole story. But but when she, she took it to show to her husband, the husband said, no, you know, you, you, you can't write that because people are going to think it's you. You know, you can't. And, and what will my friends think? What will my relatives think? You're my wife. You can't forget that. You know, you have that status in society. So when she came back for us to consider publishing the manuscript, she had changed the whole narrative in the third person. Gosh. which, of course, lost the, the whole effect mm-hmm. which had attracted us in the beginning. So, so that made me to think that perhaps an African woman is, you know, is, more, you know, is more self-censoring than women from other societies. What then happens to a woman from Africa when she goes overseas? Because you're now, uh, you're now director of the African Writers' Trust which means that you're working a lot with you know, African writers in the diaspora, people who've left the continent. Yeah. Does she have sort of an identity crisis? Is she still battling with her identity as she was when she was in Africa and then you know, finding some sort of liberty that may be difficult for her to, to handle? Uh, I think it's a different kind of identity crisis, maybe, because I've been living in Europe now for six years, and uh, I've, I've not really encountered a situation where I've been referred to, you know, my identity would be constructed using that of, of, my, of my son, for example. I, I haven't encountered that. So I, I'm me, I'm, I'm Goretti, and I'm taken at face value. So I, I don't have that weighing down on me, 
you know, you are the mother of this person, and I am married, but at the same time, I'm not, you know, I'm not, there's no expectation for me to carry my husband's name, for example, as it would be in Uganda. So I think it's quite different. You've got a number of books behind you, um, do you presuming that you've got many books ahead of you. But from your point of view, what's been your most significant work as a woman? I would say my first novel, which is called The First Daughter. That you wrote back uh, in, in 19... Terms of impact. Yeah. In terms of impact, for example, yes. I, I think it's a story that touched many lives, especially in Africa. Can you very briefly tell us the story? The, the first daughter, it, it's a story about uh, a young African girl growing up in Africa. You know, amid the, the poverty, amid the African culture and the expectations that are placed on her. So she's the first child in a polygamous home to go to a secondary school. Unfortunately, she gets pregnant while at school. So the story follows, you know, her, 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 her triumphs, her tribulations, because when she gets pregnant, first the, the boyfriend denies making her pregnant, and they can't prove it. Then the school disowns her, and then her parents as well disown her, and so her society, all her friends. So I don't want to spoil the story for you, <laughs> but, but I, I can only say that she eventually finds her uh, her success in life. Goreshi Kayo she's a writer and founding member of FemRight, talking there about her own writing and also the organisation from Uganda. And apologies there for the quality of the line.
So today, right here in South Africa, we have actor and playwright Gina Schmuckler, who's been making a lot of waves with her production of The Line. It's been nominated for no fewer than five New Lady Awards, and after a successful run at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg, it's just about to open for a short run here at the Baxter in Cape Town. It's set against the backdrop of the South African xenophobic attacks of, 20, of 2008, and the play itself explores the fragility of goodness and engages with both victim and perpetrator. And I think Gina herself put herself something on the line to find out, to, to get the material for this. Hi, Gina. Nice to have you with us. Hi, thank you so much. This sounds like it's been a, a life-changing work for you. Just give us the background to why you decided to do it. Um, I was actually uh, doing my master's in drama uh, at the University of Advertisement, and the line is actually the culmination of my creative research. Um, I had recently returned to South Africa. I'd been living in New York um, when the xenophobic attacks broke out. And um, I actually was planning to do an adaptation of Patricia Schoenstein Pinnock's book, Skyline. Mm. And when the attacks broke out, um, my creative supervisor at the time, Craig Higginson, said to me, write your own work. So that was actually just the um, catalyst for my own work, and I started uh, doing interviews in the townships. Yeah, writing your own work is one thing. Finding the material to write about is something different. So you spent a lot of time in the townships asking who, what? Um, I was really fortunate to have a wonderful man who is a community leader, a good community leader in Soweto. And uh, he guided me towards both uh, victims and perpetrators. Um, I also interviewed a photojournalist, Nadine Hutton, and um, I was also fortunate enough to uh, interview one of the senior counselors in the ANC. Um, and that forms basically the text of the line. What sort of things were you asking of these people? It was really interesting because obviously my heart went to the victim stories. Mm. Um, but actually, as I started to interview and um, you know learned more and more about it, my um, I was introduced to the work of a psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Shea, who works with Vietnam vets, and he does a lot of work around in, and in fact coined the term the fragility of goodness. And it just really, I always wanted to know how the attacks happened and how neighbours become foes and how do you become a perpetrator and you know surely all these people are not bad people like how does it happen and the work and the research just pushed me into really working with the perpetrators and understanding the fragility of goodness um, and how it is possible and how we are all vulnerable to becoming a perpetrator um, depending on circumstances and consequences and that our own sort of position in society is not to be taken for granted um, and as the research continued I became more aware of um, 
the violence of the women, so then the research shifted to finding female perpetrators. So the research sort of guided me and guided the play, and um, there are there are female perpetrators in the piece as well. Yeah. Well, we all sort of imagine that women are, are on the side of good, but obviously there's a tipping point for them where the fragility just got broken. Absolutely. What, what was that tipping point? Um, you know, access to resources. Mm-hmm. Women who are single women who are trying to, um, well, I'm going to just speak about one person and not generalize, but with the, the, um, two of the women that I interviewed, you know, it's, it's uh, broken promises, uh, from 94 onwards, uh, poverty, ex- lack of access to resources, and a particular situation that brewed. And um, let's not forget that the, you know, the xenophobic attacks certainly that happened in Johannesburg were the poor against the poor. So vulnerable communities who were seemingly um, coming up in life and um, making money um, and without being able to have a voice to say to the government, actually, you know, this is what's going on. The voice went towards the sort of manifested anger um, pitted against the foreigners. I suppose one is thinking, or 2008, May 2008, there was an explosion of xenophobia right across the country. We've yes. had sort of mini explosions ever since, uh, though nothing has been quite so bad. Is there hope in your in your play? Is there? There is guidance. Um, it's so interesting because. Um, one of the, um, it's a question that was asked to me a lot in the post-performance talkbacks that we've done, you know, since we've been performing the, the play since May last year. Um, people asked me, you know, what did it do to me? And I was like, you know, I left um, the interviews, um, the experience actually quite optimistic. And my optimism was actually as a result of spending a lot of time in Soweto amongst communities um, where there is truly community. Um, but in particular, in, in the play, the line, there's a wonderful story of healing um, with regards to one of the Mozambican women. And she, for me, speaks to the fact that if there was dialogue in our country and people were able to really talk, there is so much healing through dialogue. So she represents the hope. And the line itself? <laughs> um, also, you know, just uh, emerged out of research. It is a metaphor. Um, it absolutely links to uh, the fragility of goodness. Um, within the actual piece, the, there are perpetrators who became victims by virtue of their actions against foreigners. Um, they were haunted by their dreams and could not uh, do anything in their lives, and they fell, in, fell to pieces. And that was just, you know, your ordinary person who became swept along in the violence and who committed atrocities and couldn't really cope after that. There is a photojournalist who becomes, um, who moves from witness to victim. There are victims who move to survivors. So the line is sort of um, in an ever-changing position that none of us are really sort of um, secure in. Uh, just lastly and very briefly, Gina, I imagine this is the sort of play that every South African should be seeing. Would it be nice to see it in the townships where it was, uh, where the material first came from? Yes, we are. Um, in in Johannesburg, um, the attacks were initially there was a meeting that was held at the Sankopano Centre in Alexandra, and we are um, we're we're going on a tour later in the year in which we are going back to that venue with facilitation where we are going to be doing the play and having discussions afterwards. Um, 
but certainly the, the, um, the response to the work in Johannesburg was that it is a play that engages people and it engages us um, in our country and um, that it actually left people feeling very connected to South Africa and connected to what's going on here. And that, to me, was um, such a wonderful surprise because I, every time we go back into the work, I feel so connected to South Africa and, and its complexities. And I think that that's what I try to capture is that when we're, we're living in such a complex country and there's really no easy answers to what's going on here. Sounds like a must-see, Gina Schmuckler. Thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Gina Schmuckler, actor, playwright, talking about her production The Line. It opens at the Baxter Theatre in Cape Town, April the 2nd, for just a short week-long run. Well, that's it for Otherwise Today. There'll be more on Monday with a little extra time, starting from 12. But next up, Sharp Sharp, the children's programme.